Hi, it's Nathan Eckersley here. Before we get into the new episode of my podcast, I do need to warn you. On this episode, you might hear me asking you to send me a message with your opinion. I love hearing your opinions, but the messages you hear me reading out on air are from the live broadcast of the podcast, which takes place on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3pm UK time. If you want to get involved, make sure you listen live then. Please don't try to send in any messages for this episode, as your message won't be read, but you might still be charged. Anyway, that's the legal bit done. Now on to the show. And welcome to the Nathan Eckersley Podcast. I'm Nathan Eckersley, and on the show this week, is it coming home? I'll look ahead to tonight's Euro 2020 final, where England will play Italy for the chance to win their first piece of silverware in 55 years. We'll also be discussing the UK's military withdrawal from Afghanistan, and whether it's the right decision. Plus, I'll be speaking to leading political historian Sir Anthony Selden about his latest book, The Impossible Office. It's a packed show, and I want to hear from you, so let's go. This is it. For the first time since 1966, England have made it all the way to the final of a major international tournament. The man of the hour, Gareth Southgate, has redeemed himself in the eyes of the public after it was his missed penalty as the Euro 96 semi-final that ended England's journey. In 2013, then chairman of the FA, Greg Dyke, made two very bold predictions. The first was that England would reach at least the semi-final of Euro 2020, and the second, that England would win the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. At the time, Dyke was ridiculed by pundits and commentators for being naive and idealistic, but we now know that at least 50% of his prediction has come true. I wonder if he puts money where his mouth is down at the bookies. But much of that is down to Southgate's philosophy, but also it's through the huge investment from the FA and the government into grassroots football. None of these players would be on the pitch were it not for the dedication and hard work of the grassroots coaches and small clubs, which bring so many communities together. For the second part of Dyke's projection, only time will tell. But believe it or not, however, it's not just football that's coming home. It was announced this week that the UK, US and NATO allies will withdraw their troops from Afghanistan, thus ending the 20-year war in the country. In a statement to the House of Commons on the withdrawal, the Prime Minister set out what the UK's contribution to the conflict had been. That effort from the beginning. Over the last two decades, 150,000 members of our armed forces have served in Afghanistan, mainly in Helmand province, which was, from 2006 onwards, a focus of our operation. In the unforgiving desert of some of the world's hard, harshest terrain and shoulder to shoulder with the Afghan security forces, our servicemen and women sought to bring development and stability. The House will join with me in commending their achievements and paying heartfelt tribute to the 457 British 
service personnel who laid down their lives in Afghanistan to keep us safe. The Prime Minister went on to explain what the UK's future policy for Afghanistan will look like. Most of our personnel have already left. I hope that no one will leap to the false conclusion that the withdrawal of our forces somehow means the end of Britain's commitment to Afghanistan. We are not about to turn away, nor are we under any illusions about the perils of today's situation and what may lie ahead. We always knew that supporting Afghanistan would be a generational undertaking, and we were equally clear that the instruments in our hands would change over time. Now, we shall use every diplomatic and humanitarian lever to support Afghanistan's development and stability. We will back the Afghan state with over £100 million of development assistance this year and £58 million for the Afghan National Security and Defence Forces. I can't help but feel that the Prime Minister has underestimated the huge threats that come with this withdrawal. The Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Tugendhat, was critical of the move in his response to Boris Johnson's statement. In a country like Afghanistan, if persistence isn't persistent, if endurance doesn't endure, then how can people trust us as an ally? How can people look at us as a friend? This reminds me not of Vietnam, but of Germany in 1950, at a time when we could have walked away. We could have said, it's too expensive, it's too difficult to rebuild. Let's let Stalin have it and see what happens. But we didn't, we stayed. And in doing so, we liberated the whole of Europe peacefully. Tobias Elwood, chair of the Defence Select Committee, however, was much starker in his criticism of the move. The Taliban. We have audio only as we go to Tobias Elwood. Tobias. Mr Speaker, decisions don't come any bigger for a Prime Minister than to send our armed forces to war. But when an overseas operation lasts two decades, costs hundreds of British lives, billions of pounds to the taxpayer, and ends in retreat, it would be a dereliction of duty not to ask what went so wrong. We now abandon the country to the fate of the very insurgent organisation we went in to defeat in the first place. Tom Tugendhat served on the front line in Afghanistan and has a first-hand knowledge of the conflict. Tobias Elwood, whilst he didn't serve in Afghanistan, led a highly distinguished military career before entering the House of Commons. There are other MPs who served on the front line who disagree with NATO's strategy to withdraw. These are voices of experience which we should all listen to and take note of. This is a highly risky move which could potentially damage our national security. The Taliban, who are not exactly the most trustworthy group, have been given an open goal to renege on their commitments to the Western nations, who have occupied the country for the last two decades. Whilst there has been a lot of progress from advancing girls' education in the country, a move which the Foreign Secretary called a crowning achievement, to creating some stability in a highly volatile region, not much has changed in the last 20 years. There are even fears that a lack of Western presence will in fact put girls' access to education in jeopardy. As the Western forces begin their retreats from Afghanistan, China, which has been preparing for such an event, 
has already commenced manoeuvres to increase its influence in that part of the world. China has already had a number of high-level discussions with the Taliban, who are planning a return to power according to a report by the Financial Times. It is important to recognise that Afghanistan lies at the centre of Xi Jinping's flagship Belt and Road Initiative, which will see an influx of Chinese investment flood the country and its neighbours. The US has led the withdrawal with the announcement that they would withdraw all but a handful of troops who had stayed to protect the embassy in Kabul. The Afghan war was started by the US and NATO allies in response to the 9-11 terror attacks which killed 2,977 innocent people and injured over 25,000. President Biden has concluded the efforts of his two predecessors in bringing the troops home, and he has managed to get his fellow NATO allies to follow suit, leaving only a skeleton number of troops to facilitate diplomatic and security measures. The Afghan war has now ended, but at what cost has it been fought? We must never forget that 457 British troops lost their lives in Afghanistan, with thousands of personnel returning home with life-changing injuries. In addition, there have been an incalculable number of veterans from this conflict who have taken their own lives as a result of poor mental health provision from the armed forces and mistreatment from, foreign gov uh, from previous governments. The vexatious claims that troops had committed war crimes in Afghanistan and indeed other deployments, including Iraq and Northern Ireland, have been another reason for the increasing number of veteran suicides. However, I want to hear from you on these issues, so please do get in touch. A reminder that you can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, should UK armed forces have withdrawn from Afghanistan? To vote in the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807 183 You can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk. All our contact details can be found on our website www.wizardradio.co.uk. We'll be back after this. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase, plus get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Welcome back to the show. Let's go over and hear what you have to say. Our first statement is from Ben, who says, 
What happened to the British government's commitment to not leaving nations like Afghanistan until there was stability and democracy? I do understand that there is a lot of fatigue around wars like Afghanistan amongst the public, and bring our boys home is probably quite a good tagline for Boris to get behind. But as you said in your introduction, Nathan, our government has not achieved what it wanted to achieve in the region when it first entered. Doing more work on the ground and not leaving until that stability is there would help a generation of Afghans have the future they deserve. Abandoning at this point, which, make no mistake about it, is what the government is doing, is now going to allow generations of work to be undone. What a waste. Thank you very much, Ben, and you are absolutely right. It is such a waste. Billions of pounds, billions of dollars, hundreds of lives lost in this country and in this war. And at what cost? You're, you're absolutely right here to suggest this. Th throughout this conflict, it, it has been based purely on the intention of keeping us, the public, and the, the West safe from terrorism. We know that this war was fought in response to the 9-11 terror attacks and to essentially end the threats that the Taliban posed. And of course, the Taliban has made a number of great strides and gone very far in reforming itself and becoming a much more moderate force in uh, geopolitics today. We know that before the US presidential election last year, President Trump, should he have been re-elected, was planning to host some of the Taliban leaders at Camp David, a very controversial move, but a signal of a, a new future for Afghanistan, a new future for the Middle East, a future which is so much more optimistic and hopeful especially for the civilians who've uh, been so adversely targeted in this conflict. The Taliban has brought so much hardship and devastation to Afghanistan, just as this war has. And the Allies and NATO, they were doing such amazing work in bringing stability to the country and to increase uh, in particular, girls' access to education, something that was mentioned earlier and has been reflected on by the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary and other world leaders who have been involved in this conflict. But, as you say, at, at, at what cost is this going to happen now the withdrawal has happened? Girl, girls' education is going to be potentially threatened by this, especially... If the Taliban is plotting a return to power, this could potentially see them return to a much more extremist position, one that we worked so hard to move away from. Thank you very much, Ben. Our next question is from Sammy, who says, The UK armed forces shouldn't have withdrawn from Afghanistan, but it's a really obvious why we have done this. It is no surprise that the UK has announced that it's leaving Afghanistan at the same time that Biden has announced that on the 31st of August, the US will be leaving Afghanistan as well. The UK has long just been the US's sheepdog when it comes to international wars. We have never been able to stand on our own and our politicians have always just done what the Americans have wanted us to do. Now the Americans are leaving Afghanistan, suddenly we don't think it's a good idea to be there either. This government has no original thoughts of their own. Well, I, I would disagree. Thank you very much for messaging, Sammy. But I, I would have to disagree with you on this point because 
you, you're absolutely right in saying that the UK followed the US into Afghanistan for this conflict. But so did all other NATO allies. Let's not forget that once the horrendous terror attacks of 9-11 took place, the United States under President George W. Bush triggered Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, which said that it's an, an attack on one member state is an attack on all member states. The 9-11 terror attacks were an affront to freedom and democracy and all the, so the, the uh, attributes that the West holds so dear and so close to our hearts. This was an attack on all of us. It really was. And it was absolutely right to go in and defend ourselves from the, the Taliban and the terrorist threats that came with it. But this withdrawal, all it means is that we are abandoning the work that we started 20 years ago. As Tobias Elwood said in the clip I played earlier, we are retreating from this. It is not just a withdrawal, it is a retreat, which is why th th we should all be opposed to this withdrawal. We need to finish what we started 20 years ago. It, it isn't right that we have spent so many billions of pounds billions of US dollars to invest in these social programs to lift the Afghan people to where they should be, to return to prosperity for the nation, to return to stability. And now it feels as though we are abandoning these people. In particular, uh, as I keep mentioning, the uh, girls' access to education. In this climate, it's so difficult to ensure that girls get the education that they are entitled to and deserve. Yes, there's been a lot of work to do this, to get to where we need to be, but at what cost? Thank you very much. Uh, our next message is from Conrad. Uh, whilst I'm obviously in support of stability in unstable regions, I just don't think there is much of a taste for the UK to be involved in international wars at the moment. We entered Afghanistan post 9-11 at the start of the century when everyone felt under attack. In 2021, I don't think people feel under attack anymore. I know the terrorist attacks on our soil were only a few years ago, but those feel like history to most people now. The British public feel outraged that the government is spending money on having feet on the ground in countries like Afghanistan. Yet we can't provide pay rises for NHS staff and there is record homelessness. I know to most of us those feel entirely disconnected, but I really do think that most people think this way and that it is time for us to get out. Thank you very much, Comrade. I I agree with you to some extent on this, and you are right that there isn't an appetite in the UK or the US or indeed other NATO countries to, to be engaged in war at the moment. But we haven't been in a war as such with Afghanistan for a number of years now. We've been mostly there on peacekeeping missions to provide overseas development and aid to the people and to ensure that the government is treating them how they deserve to be treated and to ensure that there is stability in the country. We've been there as a presence, not as a belligerent for the last few years. Now, on your point about the NHS staff, well, we have had the funding to continue our presence in Afghanistan at the same time we've been able to provide pay rises for the NHS and whilst I agree that it, it is 
it can be i understand the, the reasoning why it can be seen as an insult this proposed pay rise from the government to nhs staff in reward for the hard work during the pandemic i'm i'm not sure there is actually much of an appetite at the moment in the public for uh, public sector pay rises especially when in such a harsh economic climate that the lockdown has brought us the public sector are being guaranteed pay rises whilst the vast majority who work in the private sector are potentially facing being laid off or not even being given consideration for any sort of uh, private sector pay rise. And when the economy is in such a precarious position, I'm not sure that such a huge pay rise would be seen as fair to many people. We must, of course, reward the hard work of the NHS staff throughout the pandemic. But it, again, it's such a huge pay rise, it could be seen perhaps as an affront to many who are working in the private sector. And again, on homelessness, you're absolutely right to point this out. And of course, many troops who served in Afghanistan are indeed homeless because of a poor set of provisions from the armed forces, from the government, from the Ministry of Defence. We are constantly reading about another veteran who has taken their own life because they weren't given the right support for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health conditions that have been uh, uh, picked up in the in the conflict and since leaving and of course once they are discharged from the armed forces again there is very little that's being done to 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 protect them and to reward them and the former veterans minister johnny mercer is absolutely right when he called for everyone to adopt this uh, this armed forces covenant, which would protect our veterans and give them opportunities and equal rights. And uh, unfortunately, we are failing our veterans. And it is to our shame that we are failing them. Thank you very much for that, Sammy. Our next message comes from Mikey. I don't have a particular opinion about us retreating from Afghanistan. But when it comes to our overall feet on the ground strategy, it seems a bit heartless. Listening to you, Nathan, I, it sounds like we've left Afghanistan in a way that has completely abandoned the people who have really needed us there. And now there is a country like Haiti, which is actively asking Western countries like the US and the UN for feet on the ground to try and prevent them from going into a hostile situation after the president was assassinated. And we're nowhere to be seen. We have an opportunity to actually make places better. Here is a country asking us to be there and we're not stepping up to the plate. Thank you very much, Mikey. And of course, the situation is truly, truly terrible in Haiti following the assassination of President Moise in his own home while he was sleeping earlier this week. And of course, we have a duty to uh, protect those who need us. We have what's known in the United Nations as a responsibility to protect, that we go into situations where we are called upon but we have to make sure there is stability in the nation before even considering entering and to ensure that once we've done what we need to and have left, that the situation is stable and even more stable than when we first found it. Of course, it's absolutely right that we do what we can for Haiti in this very trying time for them. I, but in my own opinion, I think we need to ensure that the interim president has time to uh, get get some stability, try and uh, bring the uh, assassins to justice. We know that it was a uh, 
number of uh, commandos who uh, completed the assassination and uh, once there is some stability then it is only right for us to go in there and make sure that everything that we can do is done and to ensure that the situation is kept as stable as possible. Thank you very much for that, Eki. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. Let's check in with the poll to this week's question. Should UK armed forces have withdrawn from Afghanistan? 59% of you say yes, we should have withdrawn from Afghanistan. Whilst 41% of you say, no, we should not. Very interesting. Please do keep contributing to the poll. And a reminder, if you do want to get in touch with us, uh, you can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can, of course, vote in the poll. And that can be found at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807. 183538. You can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all our contact details can be found on the website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. Now every week I'm going to be joined by different leaders and commentators and thinkers to pick their brains about the latest news and current affairs as well as talking about their latest projects. And I am really excited to introduce this week's guest. My guest this week is political historian and author of The Impossible Office, The History of the British Prime Minister. Sir Anthony Selden, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Before we discuss your latest book, I'd like to ask you about an article you wrote in June for The Spectator. You make the case that Boris Johnson could become one of our greatest prime ministers. What made you draw this conclusion? Well, I'm not saying that I'm a fan of him or, or, or not. I mean, it's, it's not a political point. But if we look at the truly great, great prime ministers, uh, we might pick out um, Churchill, uh, Lloyd George, uh, Clement Attlee, Thatcher, Gladstone, um, what they have in common, those um, uh, Liberals, Labour and Tory PMs, is that they all really shifted the agenda. They were all in power at historic times. So what tends to happen is that historic um, events tend to make historic prime ministers more than historic prime ministers making historic events. So if we look at, at, at Lloyd George, First World War, Churchill, Second World War, Thatcher, end of the Cold War and the Falklands War, Lloyd George, end of the Second World War, Korean War, beginning of the NHS, beginning of the mixed economy, beginning of NATO, beginning of the peacetime special relationship with the US, beginning of the end of empire with India. You know, these are great historic events. So let's now turn to Boris Johnson and look at uh, what he has done. Um, COVID is a massive historic event. It's been the worst economic crisis for 300 years and the worst health crisis since the flu epidemic 
after the First World War. So, though, you know, COVID is a massive, and the COVID recovery, massive historic event. So is Brexit. And Brexit uh, is, for worse or better, um, is a event which it ranks up there with the most significant events of the last hundred years in peacetime. Uh, and additionally, great prime ministers tend to win great landslide elections. Clement Attlee, 1945, Attlee, 19, sorry, Thatcher, 1983, Lloyd George, 1918. Churchill didn't actually win a great uh, <laughs> landslide, but many of them have. Um, and of course, Boris Johnson won uh, the biggest Tory uh, victory for over 30 years. So, you know, look, it, it, he's only had uh, two years as prime minister, but I'm saying that it is possible. He has the ingredients uh, of being a great prime minister, but whether they're going to blend together and make a, uh, make a cake um, uh, or whether it's going to be just an unholy mess of ingredients that don't match up, we've got to see. But, you know, there's a chance. Okay, so just drawing on Boris Johnson's electoral record, he won the London mayoralty twice. He led the historic uh, votes leave campaign in the EU referendum, and he won such a huge majority in 2019 at the general election. What do you think it is about him specifically that makes him so electorally successful? Charisma and likability and charm, but also uh, he matches up with very good um, uh, advice from media consultants and he employs uh, very clever people um, who um, uh, like Dominic Cummings, uh, who give him the slogans that help him win. So in 2019, uh, Get Brexit Done was uh, a very, very clever slogan. It was short. It was snappy. Uh, it's what it said on the tin. Um, so I think it's a mixture of having those slogans. And in 2016, I was a Remainer, but Remain lost. I mean, Remain was simply beaten um, uh, by a superior campaign. Um, and so I think it, 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 it's, it's the mixture to have charisma and charm and likability is not of itself enough. It needs to be uh, in, matched up with um, really neat, simple, coherent slogans that people understand. And frankly, the third ingredient is luck. And he is one lucky person. Let's move to the other side of the, the coin now and uh, move away from Boris Johnson. And let, let's have a look at Keir Starmer. He's not had a, much luck at the moment as leader of the opposition. He's overseen Labour's worst electoral results in the local elections. He lost the Hartlepool by-election to, to the Conservatives. What do you think he needs to do to cut through so that come 2024, the next general election, he stands a much greater chance at possibly beating Boris Johnson? Well, I'm not certain that he can do very much. He can't change who he is. Only four Labour uh, leaders have cut through and won power from opposition. 
they're Ramsey MacDonald, the first Labour leader, Clement Attlee, who won in 1945 and was Prime Minister overseeing that extraordinary domestic uh, and international agenda from 1945 to 50. Harold Wilson, who became Labour leader in 63 and won in 64 against the Tories after 13 years, and Tony Blair. And I'm afraid to say that uh, that, that, that he, Starmer is simply, for all his personal qualities, he's simply in a totally different league. I mean, it's, you know, you, you're playing kind of Vauxhall division, uh, a very low level football league or comparatively low. Uh, compared to compared to Premier League, I mean, you know, uh, it, it it just isn't. Uh, he just isn't of the same quality as them. Now, the one he most resembles is Clement Attlee, who wasn't a great orator, didn't have much charisma either. But that was a very different time. And so, although I find him very likable and very admirable, I don't think the party will ever win with Keir Starmer unless the Tories completely implode. In other words, it won't be a win for Labour, it will be a loss for the government. That's very interesting. And let, let's move on to discuss your new book. <laughs> if, the... if you disagree with me, do, do, do come <laughs> No, back. no, I, I, I do, uh, I do I, agree with you. I, I've, I've struggled to see uh, Keir Starmer cutting through, I think, when you've got such a, a strong uh, leader like Boris Johnson, who has won these consecutive major ele- uh, electoral victories, it, it is difficult for someone like him to cut through. It is so, David against Goliath. Uh, it but, really but is. Having yes. said that, having said that, David did win. So if he can find that that slingshot, uh, it is not impossible. Nothing's impossible <laughs> in history. Well, speaking of impossible, let's move to your new book, The Impossible Office: The History of the British Prime Minister. I'd like to start by asking you about the title of the book because it's called The Impossible Office? Question mark. Why do you present the title as a question? I was told very early on when I was um, trying to make it as a author, I think, by the way, I'm still trying to make it as an author. One always feels uh, one is only ever as good as one's last book and one can never write another. So I still feel I'm slightly struggling. Anyway, I was told never put a question mark in a title. Uh, So I started off without it because so many prime ministers have failed. There have been 55 prime ministers, and by my reckoning, only nine have significantly changed the face of history in Britain, which means that 46 out of 55 have not. So that's not a great strike rate, is it? And But then it somehow seemed to be too emphatic and too prescriptive uh, as a statement, so I put a question mark on it, uh, broke the rules that you shouldn't have question marks. And uh, I think that it is not impossible, but the way that many choose to do the job is impossible. It's not unlike anything that we set out to do in life. If you're uh, setting out, you're a school student and you're setting out in to study your uh, A-levels, um, you need to um, know what it is you're going to be doing and you need how to know how to do it. Uh, those two things, what is it you're going to be doing and how are you going to do it? And most people oddly come to number 10 without knowing 
either of those things. So Theresa May didn't know how to be prime minister and she didn't know what she was trying to do. Uh, neither did Tony Blair for his first four years when he had the most political power of all. Those who have been successful have had a very clear agenda. Sometimes the agenda has been thrust upon them by a war, for example. Sometimes they've come up with it themselves and they've known how to be prime minister. And, you know, being prime minister is a really tricky job. Mm. Uh, and a way not to do it is to come in with a bruiser who thinks everybody is crap and, uh, you know, shocking and terrible like Dominic Cummings did. And you make enemies of everybody. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, nobody, um, I mean, to come back to football, no one taking over from Gareth Southgate. Um whenever that happens in 2079, you know, it, who comes in and trashes the coaches, trashes the spectators, trashes the, the, the players, trashes the clubs. I mean, you know, come on, you're not going to win that way. That's not how, you know, that you, in a democracy, I mean, maybe it works in a, uh, in, in a um, dictatorship that way, but it doesn't in a democracy where you have to mm. persuade people and so persuasion is vital. You know, that, that is the, the key ingredient. Prime ministers only as persuasive, only as effective as, the, as their ability to persuade. And what, one of the things I, I love the, about the book is the imagined conversation between Sir Robert Walpole, the first prime minister, and Boris Johnson, the 55th prime minister in the opening chapter. And you know, it's, it's fascinating to see that whilst obviously the times and situations have changed in the 300 years of the office's existence, many of the roles and responsibilities of the prime minister have remained the same. Why, why do you think the office as we know it today has endured for so long? Well, that's another great question. Uh, I mean, in that conversation, I just thought, let's try and pick out some similarities. What tends to happen is political scientists a-level uh, university studying politics, uh, you're look, looking very much at today's structures. You're not looking at the past very much. Mm -hmm. And historians don't really look at the present day. So I tried to link up history and political science and show the continuities. And the fact is that Boris Johnson, like Walpole, their prime job is to keep the country safe internally from uh, rebellions and from epidemics to keep the country safe from abroad to strengthen the position of the country abroad abroad to bolster trade uh, to um, perpetuate themselves in power to uh, keep political stability I and mean, these things are, are the same over time and also you know it's interesting both of them went to the same school they to learned in the same buildings they then went on to um oxbridge um uh, they uh then went into politics they're both chancers they came to uh to the prime ministership after a crisis south sea bubble and uh, brexit they both nearly lost their um, jobs and lives in their first year in office. They were both uh, living in number 10 with a woman, not their wife, 25 years <laughs> younger than them. I mean, you know, incredible similarity, both big bon viveurs, you know, both were big people. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, I just thought that that was 
fun and how the job mm. survived. I think the job survived because the Walpole did it for 21 years and he really cemented the office. And then uh, Pitt the Younger, uh, at the end of the century, beginning of the 19th century, did it for 19 years. And they kind of, again, he again cemented the office. But also it's a lot to do with the fact that Britain didn't have a, a revolution after 1721 mm. when Walpole was appointed outside of Ireland, didn't have a civil war outside of Ireland, uh, wasn't invaded by a foreign power. So there was a continuity that there wasn't there in um, France, which had a revolution, Spain, civil war, Portugal, Italy, uh, Germany didn't, Italy didn't even exist. Um, the, the fact that Britain had consolidated itself had its revolution and civil war, got it over and done within the 17th century, had a uh, monarchy that was a constitutional rather than an absolute monarchy. So Britain had kind of matured earlier and therefore was more uh, suitable for, for the prime ministership to, to take place. But, you know, it, we, we could have lost the job. I mean, it, it, the office could have disappeared. And so, something else that's endured al alongside the office of the prime minister is, of course, the union. And the book refers to uh, devolution as an institutional constraint to the office. Do you think Tony Blair was right to pursue devolution for Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland in the way he did? Or do you think he created an unnecessary problem for himself and his successors? Both, I think. I think it was pretty inevitable that the pressure for greater autonomy, you know, it was pretty unstoppable. He tried to stop it and didn't put in uh, the measures he did to give greater power and uh, um, in Scotland and Wales, then I think that problems would have arisen. Um, there's no guarantee that the unrest that broke out in Ireland couldn't break out elsewhere remote though that seems as a possibility but by doing it what it didn't do was it didn't make the scots think well that's you know super english that's tremendous we're very grateful indeed to have these greater powers we're now going to become loyal brits you give somebody something generally they want to have more um, and it's going to be an unholy struggle for the next 25 years in Scotland, not in Wales, holding the union together, uh, as it will be in, in Ireland, um, in as far as Ireland um, shouldn't be unified. I mean, there's, there's a strong case for saying that Ireland is geographically a single country, uh, separated from mainland Britain by a much wider um, chunk of water than the English Channel separating it from France with its own culture and history and traditions. Mm -hmm. um, and there is obviously a compelling case for saying that Ireland that should. So Brexit, uh, as well as, I, I think, and more than the reforms uh, mm -hmm. instituted by Tony Blair after 1997 have made it uh, at least questionable whether the territorial and political integrity of Britain will be able to, to remain the same. And with Scottish nationalism becoming increasingly popular, and of course you mentioned the uh, troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, rising tensions yeah. particularly around Brexit, is Boris Johnson the man to save the union? Well, um, many asked that question he is the prime minister 
he can't be got rid of. You can't bring on somebody to uh, take a penalty and and then take them off the pitch again. You can't you, you can't bring on somebody who the Scots might like much more. I'm not certain actually there are many Tories who the Scots might like much more, but Rhys mm. Davidson, uh, who led the Scottish Tories, clearly is one of those people. I mean, if Ruth Davidson was Prime Minister, that would do a lot to all as well as ex- exacerbating some tensions within Scotland. It would she would be a much better advocate for the unity of the union between England and Scotland. Uh, being maintained than Boris Johnson, who is not liked nor trusted uh, north of the border. Okay, and I'd like to move away from uh, from talking about the book and discuss your recent appearance at the uh, Chalk Valley History Festival to speak about the book. And it, it's fair to say it caused some controversy. Uh, the Daily Mail reported that a group of left-wing activists tried to claim that Winston Churchill was no better than Adolf Hitler, which is really just such a ludicrous claim. But as we see more and more, typically left-wing activists engage in this new sort of historical revisionism. Is this a symptom of a new, uh, quote-unquote, woke culture running through academia? So I I think that there are very important um, and uh, necessary adjustments that need to take place to the curriculum to make it a better representation of of the country that Britain now is. But at the same time, one can go too far. And to say that there's any equivalence between Churchill and the Nazis is so ahistorical that Mm. that it's not worth any further comment. Of course, Mm. Churchill made mistakes. We are all the products of the backgrounds through which we live. And... I think that that is something that can be too easily forgotten when we're looking at Gladstone, for example, Mm. who was a supporter of slavery in his early career and then moved away from it. We are, all of us, uh, the products and things that today uh, seem to be very respectable might well be seen in years to come as being outrageous. So what I was trying to say and what I believe in is that we should try and understand rather more and condemn a little less. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, that the militancy, while understandable, is not helpful. Um, and reason is a much better weapon than aggression in changing hearts and minds. We need to understand why the past was as it as it was, why people who were not, sometimes they were bad, often they weren't bad, had the views that they had, and understand uh, that takes us much further into understanding history than trying to burn books and, and trash uh, uh, people's reputations. So do, do you think this militancy, as you said there, this militant culture that's developed within mostly students has come from something much more innate within our universities and academic institutions. Do you think education has moved towards a much more defined left-wing bias? Well, I was at university 40 years ago and it was ostensibly far more left-wing than than it is now. And there were prevailing mindsets about what was acceptable to say and not acceptable to say. 
so I think we can get lost and exaggerate. Uh, I think as Churchill also said, uh, always purported to have said, if one isn't left wing uh, before the age of, I don't know what it was, 25, um, one lacks a, a, a heart. And if one's still left wing by the age of 50, uh, then one lacks a head. I mean, whether or not he said that, one can understand the point. Um, and um, radicalism, wanting to challenge the status quo, is part of being young. But we um, should also, uh, those who don't hold those opinions, shouldn't be held in contempt uh, and should have an absolute right to... Uh, be heard and uh, and the fear of a mono culture where there is only one set of values which are legitimate to express is antithetical to uh, good learning and, and, and good balance and um, uh, people will then suppress their views and their questions um, and that isn't uh, good. I mean, clearly, some views are totally unacceptable. Anybody who advocates uh, violence, um, I think anybody who purports to tell deliberate or spread deliberate untruths, such as the Holocaust uh, didn't exist, uh, is uh, shouldn't be uh, given a platform, at least on a university. I mean, if people in university want to go and hear somebody talking about these things, then they can, uh, the students who want to have these speakers can hire a, uh, a civic hall. But it's not a job of a university to spread untruth or to spread hate, but mm -hmm. to have people who are challenging uh, views against a prevailing mindset, uh, you know, that, that's important because often the the views that, that can prove most important can be the most challenging. I'd like to finish by asking for your thoughts on two questions. The, the first is, who do you think overall has been the best prime minister? Uh, I think Pitt the Younger was, was the most heroic and the, the most multi-talented uh, prime minister between 1783 mm -hmm. and 1806, mm -hmm. with the exception of 1801 to was the most extraordinary of the human beings who sat as prime minister. And the worst, I think there are many contenders for that. Mm. In the book, The Impossible Office, I drew a distinction between noble failures. And I said, for example, I think Theresa May was a noble failure because even though she failed completely on her core mission, which was to find a, a Brexit solution around which the country could um unify she failed on that at least she tried extraordinarily hard uh, and uh sweated blood to try to achieve it compared to ignoble failures who were people who were lazy or corrupt and i'm afraid to give another a recent example anthony eden prime minister in 1955 and 57 who had been churchill's foreign secretary in the war and before the war and who was um highly principled, uh, resigned in 1938, uh, was Foreign Secretary again from 1951 to 55 and responsible for helping bring peace to not which it lasted in, in Indochina, Indo Vietnam War in 1954 after the Dien Phu. I mean, you know, he was a, a 
the battle. He, he was, you know, a very principled figure, but completely misread uh, General Nasser, the Egyptian leader, and mm-hmm. took the country into a disastrous war, which damaged Britain's standing in the world, uh, and then lied to the House of Commons about it, then tried to cover up the lie. So th- mm-hmm. that isn't the kind of behaviour that one wants. So, I mean, he's a tragic... So, so I think I think there are different kinds of, of failures, mm. but it certainly wouldn't be the Theresa Mays or indeed the Neville Chamberlain, who by his own lights was trying to do what he thought was right for the country in uh, not going to war earlier with Hitler. And final question, who do you think will be the next prime minister? Well, uh, you're asking me the day after Sajid Javid has become the Minister of Health, and it's very hard for Chancellor of the Exchequer. One might have said Rishi Sunak, um, but Chancellor of the Exchequer often don't become uh, prime minister and uh, they become unpopular. When they do become prime minister, they're often not very good prime ministers. Jim Callaghan, uh, Gordon Brown, for example. Some would say John Major, though I think John Major was better prime minister than people allowed. I would say at the moment, Sajid Javid, but, you, but you know, partly because he hasn't made the mistake of Boris Johnson fell under a bus. Uh, I think he would win it now. But, you know, two years down the line, he would have made enemies, made mistakes, and there'll be a fresh face coming up, quite possibly female. We'll see. Sir Anthony Selden, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to, to be with you and thank you for having me. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much to Sir Anthony Selden for coming on. We're still discussing the UK military withdrawal from Afghanistan, so please do continue to get in touch. A reminder that you can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, should UK armed forces have withdrawn from Afghanistan? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807 183538. You can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. Let's get back to your messages and we're hearing from Tanya who says, I think the UK's withdrawal from Afghanistan is long overdue. If you ever listen to people who've grown up in war-torn countries, what they usually say is that they hate the UK and the US for entering their countries. There will always be exceptions to this, of course, but a lot of people in these countries have grown up around our troops, and as far as they're concerned, our troops are the ones blowing up their buildings and tearing apart their communities. What do you think, what you think of those statements is up to you. But I think a lot of people in places like Afghanistan resent us for being in their country and they don't want us there anymore. How long are we going to stay in a place that doesn't want us to be there? The simple solution is to get out. We should have a long time ago. Thank you very much for your message, Tanya. I'm I'm not convinced that we should have withdrawn, actually. I totally take your point about the fact that uh, you know, so many will have grown up and got so used to seeing uh, Western troops, British, American, NATO troops uh, going around their countries and setting up various camps and 
uh, hearing gunfire and shelling and all all sorts of uh, noises and witnessing other war-related activities. But we we entered Afghanistan on the basis of bringing a, an end to the terror threat, not only to ourselves, but also to the people of Afghanistan. And we are seeing constantly that, you know, that there are still incidents that go on in this part of the world. Our presence has been very much felt there. And the country overall is so much safer than when we first found it. And of course, you, I totally take the points that many will resent us for, for being there. And, you know, that many will have uh, lost loved ones. Many civilians will have lost loved ones or many will have had family members involved in the conflict. And we must always remember that. But at the same time, it's also important to acknowledge that our presence there has benefited the region and the country so much. And it was only on the Andrew Marr program this morning that the chief of the defense staff, General Sir Nick Carter, said it's too early to tell whether it's all going to hell in a handcart following our withdrawal. Well, that's not a terribly optimistic uh, projection from the chief of the defense staff on this issue. So, you know, the, the fact that he's merely suggesting that it, it could all co collapse as a response to this is a deeply, deeply worrying thing for us. And our, our presence has definitely been a, an addition to uh, the stability of Afghanistan. And the government has been thankful for our presence there, the United States presence there, and other NATO allies there. Of course, it should be mentioned that, as mentioned in the opening remarks and from the clip of the Prime Minister's statement, we will continue to support the Afghan government in various security measures and our, our, some troops will remain in the country to uh, facilitate certain diplomatic missions and security operations. But uh, at, at this time, I, I just don't think it is the right thing to do to do a full withdrawal from the country. Thank you very much for your message, Tanya. Our next question comes from Sarah. Well, our first, uh, next message is from Sarah, who says, Some people will always be anti-war. It doesn't matter what you say to them, and they are not interested in the details. There are people in the UK who, while so-called Islamic State claimed the bombings across the UK, still didn't think we should have been attacking Syria. But for those of us who see that war is an important strategy to always have on the table, we know the reality of the world. As far as the war in Afghanistan is concerned, the country isn't rid of its problems yet. It is in a better position, but in my opinion, it's in that phase where it's all to win and it's all to lose. It's a bit like the football game tonight. We should back out now and claim that it's getting to the finals is something to be proud of in itself. Or we can do this last hurdle and potentially win it all. The UK government have ironically decided to back out and just be proud of the gains we've made without going that extra mile. Thank you very much for your message there, Sarah. And... Yes, you're absolutely right. As as Tobias Elwood, the chairman of the Defence Select Committee, said, this is a retreat. Of course, the Prime Minister at the dispatch box on Thursday did refute this claim, but it is a retreat. It is a retreat from the obligations that we have set ourselves by having a presence in the country. And, of course, very, very much like the Euros tonight between England and Italy, you know, we, we need to go the extra mile. We need to give it everything we've got. We went into that country and we have a responsibility 
to protect the people of Afghanistan and protect our own people and our own country from the threat of terror. Well, we we have done that. We have made our country much safer by being in Afghanistan. But as mentioned earlier, at what cost now that we've withdrawn? The country is in a much better place. You're quite right. But uh, we have to make sure that once we withdraw, the ga- those gains we have made that the Prime Minister set out will be permanent and are not just temporary while we were there. Thank you very much, Sarah. And our final message comes from Robbie, who says, I know nothing about international warfare, war strategy, or anything like that. For those who think that we should pull out of Afghanistan, I would say this. When all of the experts say that us leaving Afghanistan is retreat, we're not living up to the promises we made, and we could be causing a disaster for the region, maybe we should be listening to their opinions and not our own random thoughts in our head. Thank you very much for that, Robbie. And you're right, I, I, I go back to what was said in the clips at the top of the show. You, you know, as Tom Tugendhat said, what is perseverance without persevering? We have to go to, to the absolute end of this strategy in Afghanistan to make sure that all the work that we've put in, all the lives that we gave, have been worth it. And at the moment, with this withdrawal and the way it's been done, I really don't think we have. These are the people that we should be listening to. Tobias Elwood, Tom Tugendhat, uh, the Labour Member of Parliament for Barnsley Central and the Mayor of the Sheffield City Region, Dan Jarvis. He too served in Afghanistan. And they all say that this is not a good idea. Why are we not listening to the people who've been there, who have been on the front line and have just witnessed for themselves what we've been doing there? It's it is not the right decision and we need to make sure that our leaders are listening to the people who are on the front line and making these decisions and analysing the conflict. Thank you very much for that message, Robbie. Okay, well, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week. Let's just check in with the poll and our final poll results are that 64% of you have voted yes. We should have withdrawn our UK armed forces from Afghanistan, whilst 36% of you say no, we should not. Thank you very, very much for listening to this week's episode. And thanks to everyone who's listening, listened this week and for everyone who sent in messages live. If your message wasn't read out this week, please do try again next week. Thank you very much to my guest, Sir Anthony Selden. A reminder that Sir Anthony's latest book, The Impossible Office, The History of the British Prime Minister, is out now and available in all major bookstores. Enjoy the match tonight and the best of luck to the England team. I'm Nathan Eckersley and I'll be back same time, same place next week. Goodbye.